Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. And today I'm honored to have a good friend and acclaimed novelist, uh, Jim Rubart, joining me as my co-host. He's a Christie Award-winning author whose imaginative novels have inspired thousands of people to grow both spiritually, relationally. And um, so, Jim, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming on to help me out. Oh, I love it. Love it. Uh, a lot of fun. Thanks. Now, we should mention that your books are under the name James Rubart, <laughs> but since our guest is also named James, and I'm Stephen James, I just thought it might be easier to just call you. <laughs> Three James. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, well, uh, our guest today, James Hankins, got his start as a writer in the seventh grade when he penned a science fiction story that his friends made him read aloud on the bus. Each night he would write the next chapter and then read it in the bus the next morning. And uh, after taking a stab at screenwriting, he became a lawyer, but his love for story never faded. And thankfully for us, he has returned to his storytelling roots. James is the author of five novels that have won critical acclaim and a growing fan base. And with all of his stories, they're built with um, principles of suspense, but they also touch on both mystery, police procedurals, and the supernatural. And uh, James and I met a number of years ago at a writer's conference, and I was impressed by his both his personal, personable attitude and just his passionate storytelling. So, uh, James, it's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. And, and uh, nice to talk to you again, Stephen. And, and Jim, it's nice to meet you. You too. Yeah, James, I remember uh, maybe it was, I don't know, last year or a couple of years ago, we were sharing a drink together at a conference in New York City, and, and uh, you just shared with me the premise for one of your upcoming novels. And I just loved seeing that light in your eye as you were talking about the story. Um, and it sounds like it's always been there, um, you know, when I look at your bio. Um, do you remember what ignited it in the first place, or has that always been there, that fire for story? Uh, you know, it's, it's always been there. I, uh, I was, I come, I'm the last of six kids in my family, and, and not a lot of creativity among them. Great people, all professional people, wonderful people, but, but for some reason... I guess my parents saved it all up for me at, at number six, uh, and I had it from the start. I couldn't get enough of uh, TV, you know, movies, reading books, and I was writing, I was writing books, you know, when I was really little, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, illustrating them myself and ridiculous little things. Um, but I was always writing them and forcing them on my friends. And as, as you said, uh, you know, in seventh grade, so I, I, I wrote a, a, a science fiction novel. I think I was probably stealing from Asimov or, or, or Ray Bradbury at the time. And, and if you're gonna if you're gonna steal, right? Why not steal from those guys? Yeah, yeah. So I was I was parroting them, and you know, and I remember writing it. And, and so one day, my friend said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "And, and we're on the bus." And I, I read it to him out loud. And the next thing you know, the back of the bus was listening. Now, it, mind you, it was probably three people. And in my mind, it's an audio, you know, it's a bus that holds 150 people now. <laughs> so I'm reading to the back of the bus, and they all, you know, like, they said they liked it. And the next day, they wanted to hear it again. So I went home, and I had, you know, I write, write some more for these people. It went on a couple of days, and then somebody mentioned to our first, our, our first period teacher, I was doing this. So he had me read it. So I was reading it. Next thing you know, I was reading the next installment to the class. And two things happened. One, I realized that. It's pretty fun for people to pay attention to your stories and at least say they like them. And then number two, I learned to write on a deadline when I was 12, which is which is handy now. <laughs> That's good. I wish I would have learned that when I was. You know, when I was in like sixth grade, um, we had this thing called the school crossing guards at our school, where they actually had sixth graders would stand there with the sign that it's a slower stop, right? And, uh, and today they would never let kids do that, right? But, but back in the day they did. And so I would stand there at this, this street corner. And they, I must have been like a second stringer because they stuck me in a corner where there was no traffic, right? And so I stood there with my sign, slow and stop, and I didn't know what to So I just made up stories. Uh, and I would mm -hmm. stand there telling stories to myself on these yeah. cold Wisconsin uh, you know, days. And I would tell them out loud just because it was interesting for me. So I'd be standing there on this corner <laughs> telling yeah. myself these stories. And, like, cars would drive past, like, why is that kid talking yeah. to himself on that street <laughs> corner? You know? and, yeah. um, but, uh, That's but, why they yeah. kept you over there in that corner, too, by the way. That's why you never probably made it to the big time. <laughs> I'd get bored with the sign that said slow stop, so I'd just run it back and forth in my hands. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> Um, you know, it's interesting because when I was in seventh grade, we had to write a story for 
English class and I ripped off some comic book story because I, I loved comic books at that age. And the teacher, uh, they had just, you know, video cameras had just come out. And the, the teacher chose one story out of all the stories to be filmed. And we acted out with the video camera and they, they chose my story. And so it's that early, James, it's that early, or Stephen, right. it's that early influence of, oh my gosh, I can yeah. write a story and people yeah. will like this and respond to it. That, you know, kind of births the dream in you. Yeah, and and you know, and and for me, it was, um, it was an opportunity to to. You know, I, I had been so enthralled by so many things that I had read, you know, you know, even at that age when I was reading the, the science fiction stuff and Jack London and Mark Twain, and and to, to find people reacting to, to what I was doing was really yeah. was pretty thrilling, you know. And so I, I end up taking sort of the writer's role in whatever. Thing I was involved in going forward. So you know, seventh or eighth, you know, I think seventh or eighth. Again, we had to, you know, we had to do a play. Well, I found out that the guys didn't want to do it. The other people in my group, so I did it. And, and so constantly, mm-hmm. I was the one who was volunteering to write the things because I loved it. And for them, it was just more homework. They didn't want to do it, but they were happy to act in it because it was easy to just read the lines. But I was thrilled to be able to write it. I think hey, uh, hey, switching gears on you just for a moment. James, your your books, you know, if you look at your books as a whole, just kind of a, as a collective, they, you, you often come up with these, I'll call them unique or intriguing moral dilemmas, you know, that characters are wrestling through. So uh, I guess my question is, how do you develop those? Or are those organic, developing as you write, or do you think about them ahead? Is, that the, is it coming out of your personal life? Is it coming out of things you see going on in culture? How do those... I think like I think like all of us, it's 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 a blend of these things. Apt apt name for it with the story blender, um, but it's it's a mixture of all these things, you know. And I think it's it's somewhat organic in that that you fine tune and you tweak what it is that's going on. But I think the dilemma, the moral dilemma, at the heart of of each story, is something that comes to me early, and it's it's often it's often the impetus for the story in the first place. You know, one of my um one of my books is it's called Shady Cross and it's probably the one with uh, the largest moral dilemma for the character. I mean, they all have something and if, I think you need a moral dilemma for a good story, but I really needed one for this because I hadn't written a story with a a true anti-hero before and I wanted to try yeah. it. I I thought it would be fun to create a character uh who was I don't want to say difficult to like because I think you like him, but but you wouldn't want to be his friend. You might like to read, and you might like to be inside his head while you're reading the book, hopefully. But you know, you, you wouldn't trust him because he's not a trustworthy guy. He's a small-time con man, small-time crook. Uh, he's never done anything for anybody else in his entire life. And one day he he has a little bit too much to drink, and he he's on his motorcycle, and he runs another he runs a car off the road on a deserted road. Well, it plows through the woods and into a tree, and he kills the driver. He goes up, he looks inside, he goes, yeah, that guy's dead. And then he sees a backpack in the back seat of the, of, of the, of the car and his money pouring out of it. Now, you or I, I think, I think the three of us and probably most people listening would probably call the police. He doesn't. He takes the money and thinks, okay, great. Now I can pay off the $100,000 I, I owe to that loan shark, and, and then I'm just going to you know, skate free with the $250,000 that's left. Yeah. But the problem is, as he's sitting in a diner with this bag next to him, dreaming of what to do with the money, a phone rings inside the bag. And he answers it because he doesn't want people to look at him with the phone ringing and him not answering. So he flips it open, intending to slap it closed again, and he hears a little girl's voice say, Daddy, are you coming to get me? They say if you give them the money, you'll be able to take me home. So this is the ran- he, ki- he had killed the father, and that's the ransom money. Now, anybody else does the right thing. But this moral dilemma, see, it's not a moral dilemma for you or, or, or I, for you or me. Right. This is a moral dilemma for this guy who's never done the right thing in his life for anybody else. So for me, the moral dilemma for that story is what created the story without that moral dilemma. And in fact, I was speaking with a publisher about it, and they said, well, I think you should make this an everyman story. Because those are common and those are great. You know, like yeah. people, I mean, I've written several everyman stories. We all have. But for this book, it doesn't work because the everyman calls the police, turns the money in and says, right. you know, go find this little girl. But this guy's struggling because he wants the money. So it takes him a little while to come around and decide whether he should do the right thing. So for that book in particular, The Moral Dilemma was at the heart of the, of the concept in the first place. That was the, one of the stories that you were telling me about. I remember that. I love that premise. <laughs> 
And I was Thank hoping you. it was the same. I, I was hoping you were going to tell that story. As when you started, I was like, I think this is the one he was telling me about. But, but what a great premise. And then your challenge at that point is, you know, your character is in a sense intriguing, but you have to make, you know, you almost have to justify his dilemma in the eyes of the readers. Like what you just said, you know, well, why doesn't he just call the cops? Well, he's got to be like enough, uh, likable enough. Or something that, and 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 almost be justified in his decision. Where we're like, well, yeah, of course he would keep the money. And, yeah, um, yeah. And that was the challenge. You know, the challenge for me, which is which is why I was excited to write this book. And this character, I mean, I've written a lot of characters that I that I do enjoy. This guy named Stokes. He's probably my favorite character because because the poor guy just doesn't want to do the right thing, but he he keeps finding himself doing it or trying to anyway, right. even though it goes against everything he's ever known. So the challenge in writing this character was making him, again, I don't think he's, he's, he's not likable in that you want to be with him, but he's likable in that you like what he's, what he's trying to do and you like his thoughts. And I think you enjoy his thought processes. He's getting places. And I think he's got some wit and some charm to him. But again, like, you know, you wouldn't loan him money. And that was, that was definitely the challenge for this book and it was it was a, as a, a balance i was constantly uh you know trying trying to to attain because y you don't want the audience to say this guy is a low life he wouldn't do right. the right thing so you right. got to make it and then one of the things that that here my overarching one of my rules of writing for myself and i think it's really important in most fiction probably but for me rule number one is you have to care about the characters yeah. At least the important ones. If you don't care about what happens to them, then you don't care about the book. You don't care about their goal. So for me, I hedged my bets with this guy because just in case you didn't like him, well, hopefully, unless you have the hardest heart in the world, you still want him to succeed and save this six-year-old six girl. Right. So I had that in my back pocket. Even if you didn't love Stokes, you really had to pull for him because you wanted him to succeed. So you cared about – if you hopefully cared about him, but you also cared about his goal. And so I figured I had a, at least a, you know, like a double-barreled approach. Well, I think you – James, I think you've, you've hit on something that I, is really important in the creation of characters. Um, my wife and I were talking the other day, and we said, if you have somebody in your life that is constantly acerbic or uh, difficult to get along with, and, and that's just who they are, and they do one nice thing, you're like, oh my gosh, she was, she was nice this time. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> we're pulling for that character, right? Whereas if you yeah. have this person that's nice all the time, somebody that's always kind and always giving, and then they're in a bad mood, it's like, well, what, what is wrong with them today? You know? <laughs> that's so, true. So it's just... It's true. Well, it's like right? my cat. It's like my cat. I got a dog and a cat, right? The dog would, would lay down its life for me. It would do anything for me. Yet all my cat has to do is look at me without contempt, and I'm suddenly <laughs> feeling like so blessed and so lucky right. that the cat is now my favorite animal in the world because for one moment it didn't want to claw my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. And my poor dog, who's the most loyal creature in the world, kind of you know, gets the short end of the stick because she's always nice. That's right. That's right. And so what you've done with Stokes is you've, you've made us all go, come on. Oh, we want you to make the right decision. We believe you can make the right decision. Right. And we're, we're, just, we're just pulled in by that. So I, I love that. I think that's a great example of creating compelling and, and, characters that aren't necessarily likable. And I'll be honest with you, it takes them a while to come around because I, I didn't pull punches in the beginning either because the, first thing you see, the very first thing you see is him buying drinks for a guy in a bar, gets him drunk being the nicest guy in the world to this out-of-towner, and then when the guy passes out, he steals his wallet. You know, so you're like, I don't like this guy. And on the way out, he ignores the waitress he slept with two weeks ago. So like in the first chapter, you're already like, whoa, not a nice guy. And then he kills the guy on the road you know, by accident and then takes the money. And then I won't even tell you what happens in the book, but he doesn't necessarily decide right away to even help. <laughs> so yeah. it takes him a little while to come around. So I was trying to ratchet up the uh, – the dislike for this guy while hoping you would stick with me long enough for him to get to the point where, where he turns things around a little bit. Yeah, and, and that's actually a really interesting point. And, and uh, I think that when we start reading a book, we implicitly understand that the author is making us promises. So mm -hmm. if I start reading a book and everything's going right for this woman, I mean, she's got her ideal job, her husband loves her, she comes home, the kids are perfect, and, you know, uh, if this goes on for a chapter, readers are like, okay, something bad's got to happen, right? <laughs> something is right. going to tear this world apart. If it goes on for two chapters, they're thinking, 
all right, I'm ready for something bad to happen, right? Yeah. And implicitly they understand there's got to be something bad. Now, yours, your, your example is almost the exact opposite where we see him kind of doing this stuff, and I think the reader is probably saying, okay, there's got to be something redemptive about this guy. There's, there's got to mm-hmm. be something where he's going to make a change. Otherwise, it wouldn't be published. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in print. So, so it is walking a fine line where you're beginning, you know, you're actually showing he's kind of, uh, you know, a low-life or jerk at first. But you're like, okay, as long as readers will stick with it, trust me, right. as a storyteller, there's going to be, you know, this transformation, at least in, in, in a small level, um, with this character. So, yeah, I think whether we start our books with a character that seems really likable or that doesn't seem likable, if he's intriguing, and we keep our promises, I think readers will stick with us. I think promise is such a key word, Stephen, because books, a book is really a book itself is a promise. And then within the pages are many promises. You know, the book is a promise that if you buy this, if you start reading this, my promise to you is that, is that you will, it will be, it will have been worth your time. But then there are, then there are micro promises, promises every chapter. You know, when you, like, like you just said, you know, you set up this character, you're promising that, that something's going to happen to turn this around something, you know, and, and if you create a, a, a situation you, you are promising there's going to be a payoff. So you have to be careful about breaking those promises. If you set something up, you've got to be really careful walking away from that and not coming back to it because people, readers will, will sense something missing. I mean, who, who was it? Was it Chandler, Raymond Chandler, who said, you know, you know if, if there's a gun on the table in the room, somebody better fire it or somebody better pick it up? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's true it, it, because if, if, you, if a character walks in, slams a gun down on the table and starts talking – and the gun never comes up again other than as a, as a force of intimidation, as an instrument of intimidation. Well, you've broken a promise. You put that gun there. But, you know, plant a bomb somewhere in a book, literally a bomb. Have somebody put a bomb somewhere. Can you imagine that bomb not going off? So there's, there's promises throughout the whole thing. You know, some are disguised. Some you don't realize how they're going to pay off later. And, and then when it happens, you know, that's fantastic, you know, because they didn't see it coming. But a book itself is a promise. And then there's, there's a series of them throughout the entire book. Setups and payoffs. Those are all promises. Yeah. And promises okay, yeah. James. James, I don't want you to give away your book because I want listeners to go out and buy your book and read it. But you made a promise when Stokes hesitates. When he hesitates for a moment before just you know dumping the phone and taking the money, you've made a promise that uh, he's going to eventually make some de- decisions that goes against his nature. Because if not, you know people at the end of the book are going to throw it away. So how do you main- how did you maintain the tension of him making that decision? And, and yet, while pe- and and yet, knowing that your reader is going, he better make the right decision in the end. <laughs> uh, how did I do it? I mean, you know, the mechanics of it, I, I'm not sure, but I can tell you that I I did, and and I, I held it for a long time, because what I one of the things I really try, I mean, I think we all try to do, but as authors, but one of the things I really want to avoid is is being predictable. I mean, it's sort of the death of what we do. To be a predictable writer, so I often get right. to the point where I where I where I hit, I hit a point and I say, "What does everybody expect?" And I'll do the opposite. So I did that a couple of I did that a couple of times in the beginning before Stokes finally turns around. He actually decides he's not going to help. So there's like he he goes through a couple of things where he doesn't yeah. help. So at some point, and I was trying to to string the reader along a little bit because I reached a point where it was very natural that he would say, "Okay, now you're going to help," and then I didn't. And the, and the oh, reader would probably yeah. say, wait a second. And then I did that twice. And they were big moments, and he was finally forced into helping um, in a way that I can't reveal. Right. But uh, I, I really did – I think I pushed the envelope a little bit because I, I wanted to, to heighten this. I wanted the, – because the audience knows he's going to help. If not, there's no book. If the guy takes the money and is drinking Coors Light on a beach in Bahama with it for the last you know, 80% of the book, it's not really much of a book. So you know he's going to help out. But but I really pushed it for as long as I could because I didn't want to be predictable. And what I was hoping yeah. was the reader would say, oh, that was a nice surprise. I thought he was going to help them. I thought that was going to turn them around, and it didn't? Wow, that's cool. And then the ways that it didn't was, was um, a part of the way that I was developing, showing his character, showing – because it wasn't just – that he didn't. It was the way he didn't. The choices he yeah. made, why he didn't. So I was trying to develop character through his actions, 
uh, and his inaction in this case. And then hope the reader would, again, you know, trust me. You use the word trust, Stephen. I hope they would trust me to get around. And, and I, don't think, I don't think I heard one person say, I gave up because I just kept waiting for him to do it. You know, yeah. so I think for the most part, people, people went along with me. But it was a, it was a challenge. It was a, it, was a, it was a tough tightrope to walk for a little while there. Yeah, you pointed out a lot of the aspects that I like to, you know, direct, especially aspiring authors to. One is is believability. As a character's got to be believable, um, and also unexpected. Like we need plot twists and turns, and and um, but they have to remain believable. Like when they come, it can't be something where a reader's like, "Come on, right. that would never happen." Right. So right. we walk that line, and you know where it, it is unexpected, but also when it happens, we say, "Okay, right, yeah, no, totally, that makes sense." And and, also and the believability like, yeah, yeah. is the believability is something that that was something I had to I had to address head on with Stokes. And we're focusing on this one book, which is which is which is fun because I really I really enjoyed writing this one, and it was it was interesting. Um, the uh, but the believability was an issue because this is a guy, he's 30, uh, 30, I think he's 36 years old, and he's literally never done anything for anybody. Mm. And what you'll find out through the book is that he, really, he needs help to get through this, and everybody he, t- he turns to. And this is how I, I developed his character. I, 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 I tried to show it through other people's reactions to him when he went to them for help. There, for their own reasons, would say that the ways he had – stabbed them in the back over the years, and this is why we're not helping you. So we yeah. learn a lot about Stokes through the people he talks to. So if he's such a lousy guy, how is it believable that he helps? And what you find out is, is that he walked out 13 years ago on a woman and their two-year-old child. Mm. So it's his chance in, in his mind. Well, I don't think he's seeking redemption. He doesn't really realize why he's doing it. But the reader picks up that he that he regrets that decision, or at least knows it was wrong, and is making up for it now to some degree to help a little girl. Mm. Um, and and I didn't want to hit anybody over the head with it, but I think you get a sense of this is why, and I think it helps make it helps make it believable. And then there are things that happen in the story that that make you realize too. But there's but but I always had this. This too, you know, in the back of his mind, even if he wasn't realizing, I don't think he seeks redemption because I think seeking redemption is like, is like giving a gift because you want to say here the thank you. I don't think you – I think you seek redemption. I think you, you do the act. You want to commit an act that even if it ultimately gives you redemption – that's, that's great, but you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And if you happen to be redeemed, fantastic. So he's not seeking redemption. It just so happens that, you know, hopefully as a character he finds it. Um, but it's not what he's looking for. He's just trying to help out. He's not as self-aware enough to th- think, like, this mm-hmm. is going to make me whole again. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in the last year, I'd say, is this whole idea of finding characters – that readers want to spend time with. Um, I don't know how many TV shows people have said, oh, you got to watch this show or something. I turn it on. And literally in the pilot, there's nobody that's interested, that, that I want to spend time with. Um, mm-hmm. They're just jerks or whatever. And I think they're trying to sell, oh, we're going to have a redemptive story arc or whatever it is. But it's like, I'm not going to sit around and watch these people I don't want to spend time with. I wouldn't want to spend time with them if they were sitting in my living room. Don't yeah. want to watch them. And so yeah. I don't even watch the show. And um, And so... This idea of create – I think that one of three things that helps our readers flip pages, one is curiosity, what's going to happen, right, mystery. One is um, concern, uh, worry, apprehension, suspense, and the other is entertainment value. And I think, you know, some scenes might not have tons of mystery. They might not have super lot of suspense. But if they're just so much fun to read and the characters are just so much fun to be with, I think we accept it and we read yeah. that scene or whatever. Um, and, That's true, uh, and you know, there's there's that there's that um, you know saying that that every paragraph or sentence or, uh, or you know, however you want to slice it has yeah. to do one of three or you know or preferably more things, preferably more things. If if something can do two or three jobs, that's fantastic. And I agree, but I, I definitely think one of them can be entertainment. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, a lot of times you want it to be, you know. This this paragraph develops character as well as uh, moves the plot forward, but I think sometimes you can give a reader a little bit of a breather if it's not too long, and just say this was kind of fun to read. I enjoyed that, and if you get to learn something about the character along the way too. But I think there's definitely place uh, for 
for elements of a book, you know, brief enough, and as long as they fit together with the whole, to, to be just good to read. Just I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that moment of reading. I, I enjoyed that character's line or two. And, and, and it's, you know, all the better if you can if you can have it do double duty and carry some little extra weight for the story. But sometimes just being an entertaining little piece there can be good enough. Yeah, one of the guests that we had last year um, mentioned that he had seen an um, interview with Quentin Tarantino about Pulp Fiction. And, that, you know, basically they said, well, what about the scene where John Travolta and Uma Thurman dance? How does that develop the plot? And he's like, it doesn't. He's like, it has nothing to do with the plot. The movie works completely fine without that scene. It has nothing to do with it. He's like, but I had John Travolta. I had to have him dance. Um, and I think that's that's great, you know. It's like, and it's one of the most memorable scenes of the movie. Right, right. That's yeah, I mean, exactly right. Like, why not? You know, have and and it's entertainment, and and so that's what we come to, uh, you know, to stories for. We want to be entertained, and um, um, you know, thinking about protagonists, and we've talked about your protagonist a little bit, um, but developing a protagonist is kind of a multi-level process. I mean, as we explore maybe motivation or intention, some of the backstory, like you mentioned with this book, or unmet desire, current relationships. As, as you work, maybe both of you guys, I'm kind of interested actually in both of your takes on this, but as you develop your protagonists, how do you do that? Are, are there tools or tips that can help other storytellers truly shape the depth of the main characters in their stories? Why don't you go first, Jim? I've been doing all the talking here. <clears throat> um Wow, you caught me off guard, James. I was going to have you go first. <laughs> do you want me to go? Do you want me to go no, first? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, there, there's that old cliche that that we've heard a million times. You want to be a, a you know, you want to be a powerful storyteller. Open a vein, you know, and bleed onto the page. And, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Maybe it's a cliche because it's true. And, and in that respect, how I develop protagonists is uh, Stephen and I are, have a friend, Ted Decker, and, and Ted, once we were talking, and he says, Jim, my books are just my personal journals, you know, in published form. And I resonated so much with that because I just take all these things that I'm personally struggling with, or even if I'm not literally have gone through that situation, just the deep, dark places of me that are struggling with stuff, and, and I start writing from that perspective. And so, you know, they say each every novelist, uh, first novel is autobiographical. I'm like, are you kidding? All of mine are autobiographical. <laughs> um, um, because it, if I am deeply struggling with this or if my wife is deeply struggling with something, I take that on and then I personify it. I, I create the novel out of that deep need because odds are, um, I think, James, you were talking about finding a universal um, you know, a universal desire or need or hope or want. And if you can tap into that, um, you're going to have a compelling story. And so I think things are common to us. The things that I struggle with are things that other people struggle with, that Darcy struggles with, other people struggle with. And so I really go to that point and go deep, deep, and then you amp it up, right? The struggle I'm going through, then I amp it up so it's even more dramatic in the story. But the seeds start with my own, always start with my own struggles. Yeah, I agree. You know, me too, because, you know, Jim, you and I, we're people. And our reaction for, you know, is going to be something felt by a lot of other people. We're not, we're probably not that uncommon. We're not, <laughs> right. you know, we don't have psychopathic minds or sociopathic minds where we can't tap in. So you and I probably think a lot, you know, other than, you know, having a few different, you know, uh, switches flipped in, in certain areas um, in our brains, different from other people or each other. But there are universal things. So, uh, you know, if we're struggling with something, other people are. And, and if we have a reaction, uh, if we take an action, um, you know, with our character, then a lot of people could see that. They may, they may want to be that way. You know, if we have a, a character make a heroic, take a heroic action, they all, these people might think, you know, universally, it would be great to be that heroic. I'm not. Right. This is why I'm reading this. But I'd right. love to be. You know, um, and so so we are, you know, I, I don't know if somebody said something about holding, you know, fiction holds a mirror up to, to, to people. And to some degree that's true, but, but it's not necessarily a mirror too. It could be, it could be a distorted mirror. It could be who people want to be. That's what they're seeing in these books. Or it could be who they don't want to be, who they, who, who, you know, who they're afraid of, of becoming, who they fear they might be in that situation. You know, maybe they fear they wouldn't return the money if they were Stokes, you know. Uh, yeah. they, you know, maybe they wouldn't be as good as him. But we're all reading these things. But we're all coming from a we're all coming from a similar place. 
we're all essentially, you know, people that have similar backgrounds and similar tastes. At, 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 I'm not talking. I mean, some people are wealthy, some people aren't, some people are, you know, have different types of jobs, but. We're all human, and there are certain common human responses, the normal human response. So we can play off those, and then we can tweak them as we need. You know, we can, we can twist it a little bit, um, but we all sort yeah. of know, which is why I like to, you know, and I think we all like to, to play with those expectations a little bit. If, you, know, you know, do something that somebody wouldn't expect as long as it's, as long as it's believable, you know. I like, I like, Jim, when you were talking about, you know, personal struggles and the issues that you go through in your life. I was thinking, you know, one of my books, um, The um, the Queen, deals with this idea of forgiveness. It's not like a theme that I'm, tr- I'm trying to teach a lesson, but instead my question was, what does it mean to forgive yourself? Because people are always yeah, talking yeah. about, you have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> if you wrong me, I mean, I can forgive you, but what does it even mean to forgive myself? And so does it mean just pretend it didn't happen? Does it mean just move on? That doesn't seem really, you know, all that profound. So so as I worked on this book over the course of a year, year and a half, I kept asking myself, what does forgiveness even mean? Or what does it mean to forgive myself? And so it was really the question in the personal journey. It wasn't yeah, I didn't have a message I was trying to I was just to Well, that's what I was actually was about to ask yeah. you, Stephen. Did you did you come up with an answer? And to you. <laughs> are you able are you able to encapsulate you know, in a few words how how you forgive yourself? What does it mean? In your opinion, based on on what you did for a year and a half, yeah, you know, for me, I actually think that we can actually receive forgiveness, and we can extend forgiveness toward others. Um, and I think whenever we start saying I need to forgive myself, it's probably an issue of we haven't received forgiveness yet from other right. people. Um, whether it's from God, forgiveness from God, or from from another person, if they extend forgiveness to us, so we, and. And so, uh, you know, part of it is a lot of honesty and humility to, to actually receive forgiveness and be willing to forgive, you know, other people. And, and um, I kind of find that's true. You know, one of the things I'm a Christian, and one of the things I was uh, when I thought I was like, okay, well, must talk in the Bible about forgiving yourself. I mean, if it's important, but nowhere ever says that. Hmm. You should forgive yourself. It's like God. You should receive God's forgiveness. You should extend forgiveness to other people, but. Doesn't even bring it up, so I thought, mm-hmm. well, if it's not even important enough to God to bring up, why am I spending so much time worrying about doing it? You know, so. Uh. <laughs> but you know, it's, when we talk about the uh, um, universal feelings um, and thoughts, that's also a, a lot of what drives our plots and, and our stories too. Because if we were writing stories about things that weren't, to some degree, uh, didn't resonate personally for people, then nobody would probably read them. I mean, some of us will read something to completely escape, you know, so we're reading science fiction or fantasy or or something like that, but there are still themes and messages in there that that resonate with us. But, you know, for us, for us, in our our stories, you know, somebody asked me in an interview, you know, why, you know, why crime novels? You know, why is that some of what you do? Why do you do with crime in a lot of your novels? And and, uh, I thought because because we're all afraid of it to some degree we're all afraid of crime you know we don't want it we don't want it to be perpetrated on us uh, we don't want it to be to, to happen to people that we love and you know you think about the consequences are terrible for people we've all known or read about people who've suffered from it and and um you know the same question it was actually about going to prison and 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 i said well no you know Prison is terrifying. Nobody wants to go to prison. We all have some sort of, you know, when we watch a character get wrongly accused, we're horrified by this. And then the idea of a wrongly accused person spending time in jail, you know, you know, 30 years for something he didn't do, we're all horrified when we read about that, somebody getting released after 30 years, having spent that time in jail, time just gone. That's, we all universally are horrified by that. So we write about crime and we write about prison and we write about, you know, loss through, you know, violence or, you know, we're all curious. Right, so we write mysteries, and people like to be curious. So everything we're doing as authors is tapping into these universal wants and needs and desires and, and themes that we all understand. They're all common. They're, it comes from commonality among the people, which is what we're doing. If we wrote something so out there that people just couldn't relate, nobody's going to read it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes in my seminars, I'll I'll um I'll say, okay, just list for me some of these um, universal desires or, or needs or whatever that we have, and. You know, people say, well, freedom, we want to be free, or we want to be accepted, 
um, or maybe we want security or adventure. We want to love and be loved. We want to find um, meaning and significance and value in our choices. And, and it's always interesting for me that a lot of those are actually sort of two ends of the same uh, continuum. So, for example, like we all want adventure, but we also want security. Mm-hmm. We like, mm-hmm. So it's a paradox, right? That's we good. want adventure, but we want security. And if you meet someone who only wants one or the other, you can know you're in trouble. All they want is security. They're going to be neurotic. They're going to be clinging to you all the time because they're sapping out of the friendship. Or if you meet someone who's just an adrenaline junkie and thinks only of himself and what he can get out of stuff, um, that's a scary person to be around too. So it's like the mm-hmm. only way to be healthy mentally is to hold on to the two ends of the continuum at the same time and to embrace the paradox of what we want as humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's but, our characters, but our characters our, ta- our characters might not necessarily have that same balance, and that's why we read yeah, about that, yeah, because yeah. we want to be balanced, and that's the way to truly be happy. But if our characters were truly happy, they wouldn't need anything, and if they don't need anything, they don't go on our journey. Yep. So we're reading about these people who are lacking that balance, and that fascinates us. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. Hey, uh, James, um, let me ask you specifically what draws you into a story, whether it's a novel or, or TV or film, um, and, and maybe give us a specific example of a show where you go, you know what, this thing just drew me in, and as I look at that show, it was because of these factors. Uh Yeah, I can, I can do that, and I can do it fairly easily because my son is obsessed with this one right now. Uh Okay. I think the uh, the what if question, you know, the the the, the ubiquitous what if question. It appears in everything that we do, essentially, and it's it's the it's the start. You know, every story essentially can be boiled down to a what if. You know, we all sure. are familiar with that question, and we need it, and it's important. It's 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 how you move a story forward. What you know, what if this happened now? What happens? But the whole the whole you know, from a macro level, the whole book is a what if this happened, um, and uh, you know, for for me, uh, my my. Uh, my one of my first books was called Brothers and Bones, and I used to walk through a subway every. I used to walk on my way to a subway every day from from the job when I was a lawyer. And on my way to the subway, I would see the same homeless man on the, uh, on the same corner every day. And he's you know he's one of these guys who is just always talking. He's you know he hmm. he would he would be standing there looking at a parking meter and talking all the time. And he always did it. And one time as I was walking past him, I'd see him every day. And one time. I said to myself, as I was passing him, what if he stopped his rambling, looked up at me and said, hi, Jim, hmm. and, then, and then just went back to what he was doing. And I thought, well, you know, what if, what if he called me by, not my name, not James, what if he called me by a secret nickname that nobody in the world knew except my brother who disappeared 13 years ago? And that's the setup for <laughs> Brothers and Bones. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, you know, so the, that started the what if. So for me, it's always the what if. You know, when I see a, a trailer for a movie and it, and it presents the what if question mark, you know, I mean, question. You can get that from everything. But you ask, you know, what, what TV show or something. So I'm going to answer with this because it's the first that came to mind. It's the TV show Lost. You know, the hook. It, the hook was insane for that movie. You know, when, when they all land on this island, and then it's really, it's, it's what if all these crazy things started happening on this island? How would you explain that? And, you know, my son has binge-watched this show. He's 12 years old, and, and uh, you know, he's in the middle of the last season right now, and, and uh, he keeps talking to me about these things. I can barely remember them, but then when I start to think about them, I, I was like, you know, wow, that was crazy. And so what drew me to that was what if these people crashed in a plane on an island and then just things started happening that couldn't possibly happen on an island? So for me, what draws me into a story is that is that what if question. You know, Jaws is one of my favorite movies. Well, what if this little seaside town was suddenly terrorized by a huge shark? And that that right there, I'm I'm hooked. I'm in. Yeah. I was. And that what if question is what we. I mean, when we get the right if question, we got a whole book. You know, when it's when it's right. You know, when you when you can state the what if question. You know, it's our elevator pitch. When we get into an elevator with somebody and we we, we tell them the story. You know, when you get a good one and it comes out in like a sentence or two, like, well, what if this happened? Yeah. You know, die hard. Yeah. You know, what if terrorists took over and, and you know, a, a, a high rise and, and the only person who could stop him is this cop on the inside, you know, against all these bloodthirsty terrorists. You know, it's, it's, it's the what if story when, when it's the right one, you're in, you're hooked, you're buying it. I think you I love that. Such a if good it's job the right one, it. love that. What's coming up with those hooks, right off the top of your head, you're like, 
these great elevator pitches that would sell books. I love it. Um, uh, when, when, you're, when you're talking about that, it reminded me of this um, Rex conference I was teaching in North Carolina recently. And um, I kind of do a similar sort of thing, but I give people three questions. Like I say, okay, you have to ask yourself, what would be believable? What would make things worse, escalate the tension? And also, mm-hmm. how could you end this in a way that's not expected, but it's it, it makes sense? It's logical, so a twist, right? So right. I said, okay, let's just make up a story. Let's not outline anything. Let's just make up a story on the spot. So there's this teenage girl who breaks up with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend breaks up with her, right? So what would she do? And some people said she'd eat chocolate or she'd change her status on Facebook or <laughs> she'd cry or whatever. All those things c- c- could happen, right? They're all believable maybe. Um, but then, then one person said she calls her best friend. I was like, okay, why not? She calls her best friend to tell her you know, what happened. And I was like, all right, now I want you to think about what could happen next, what's unexpected, what's believable, and what could make things worse. And so I said, go mm-hmm. ahead and take two minutes. And so you know, all the class you know, took two minutes or whatever. And I said, does anybody want to, want to share with, with, with what you came up with? So this one um, young woman said, okay. So she calls her best friend, and she says, John just broke up with me. And her best friend says, don't even joke about that. He's been dead for a year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is a great story. I mean, it what? is a great story. That draws us in immediately. We're like, what's going on? Yeah. Is she crazy? Is it a ghost? <laughs> yeah. or, you know, what is it? And, but a lot of it is simply asking those questions that uncover the yeah. story. You know, like that actually sounds like a Harlan Coben book. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it does. it's exactly right. It's a great story. And then you're like, like so, so you boil that down, like you said. I mean, you know, boil those elements down to a what if question. You know, what if that happened? What if she got this call and and, and you know, yeah, and suddenly you're off and going yeah. on the story. Yeah, yeah, and then, and 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 all, it, like you like you said, you formulate the right what if question, and, and and you really you're off to the races. I mean, if you've got a great what if question, you should be able to to come to a story. Now, here's something I don't tell a lot of people: Brothers and Bones, which is sort of my. I guess if I have a breakout book, I guess that's it. If, if I'm on any map anywhere, it was probably from that book. And I gave you the setup, you know, where I met the, where this homeless guy looked up, "Hey James," and and I wondered, well, what if it was, you know, what if it was the the, the secret nickname that only his Missing for 13 years, brother new. So I wrote a 110,000 word novel, and I threw about 85,000 words out after I wrote this book. It's the only time I've ever done it because I loved my what if question. I loved it, and I loved the setup, and I loved the first, you know, 20 percent, 15, 20 percent of the book. And then I didn't keep the promise to myself. I didn't write a book that I thought merited it was worthy of the first 15 percent so i threw it all out i still had the what if question and i loved it so i rewrote the whole book and and i'm happy with it but it was i had the what if question and it just took a little while to get to the right answer yeah and now see some people would look at that and say oh i don't want to do that oh it was wasted time i don't look at that as wasted time i look that as part of the process of uncovering the story and it's like you wouldn't have the story you had today unless you'd gone through that process and everybody wants to you know like look at do a thousand words a day or outline or save time and save i'm like honestly um don't worry about how many drafts you end up with worry about the quality of the product that you end up with yeah and, yeah, I mean, you, it's, know, you know, that's that's easier said than done if you're on a deadline, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wasn't at the time, um, but but it's true. You know, you you for me, I look at it, and I actually I actually use this analogy in a, in a, in a um, I use this example in a book I wrote to when a, when a detective was asked by his superior why he wasn't making more headway, and I look at it as Edison in a light bulb. He tried something like ten thousand uh, materials to try to get the filament right. And he finally hit on the right one after 10,000 failures. But, I, you know, you can't look at them as failures. They're just they're, – they were part of the successful process. Yeah. So if you've got to throw away a bunch of work, it's a shame, but you wouldn't have what you end up with if you, if you didn't go through that process. Jim, do you, do, you, do you ever hit patches where suddenly this, this didn't work, uh, you know, two days gone, but it's, I'm, I'm better for it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In fact, I'll give you a specific example. I'm one of those novelists that – you know, I, I don't have any novels in the drawer. And so my first novel that I ever attempted, uh, you know, got published and it won some awards and hit the bestseller list and all this kind of thing. So I could not relate to these people who had, you know, have novels in the drawer. Well, my, the five times I met myself, um, 
it, it was a book that I wrote the whole book and, and sent it into my publisher. And they wrote back and they said, Jim, you know, uh, love you, but this book is not working. And so it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. What do you mean You're it's not working? You're kidding me. I'm a wonderkind. <laughs> Didn't you see my first book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so and, – and, and I had to admit, I was going through some really tough stuff in my in my life. But we, a tree went through our house, almost killed my wife, and we were just going through all this stuff. And I turned the book in, not knowing if it was good or not, and turned out it wasn't good. And so I had to I had to rewrite the entire book. Uh, and were you on a deadline? It, yeah, and I'm on a deadline, right? So, um, well, and so I had to rewrite the entire book. And it's a book that ended up winning the the Christie Awards. I just found out a couple of weeks ago. It won Book oh, of the Year, and so. Yeah, wow. so you look back wow. and you go, was it worth it? You know, yeah, it was worth it. It was an incredibly difficult process, but the the book that got rejected, I go, I'm not sure I want anybody to see that, and and the one that you know won the award, I, I'm very proud of. So, I guess yeah. that's what I'd love to tell people is, you know, put in the work to do the great work, and, and that's mm-hmm. painful at times, but my gosh. You know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you want to go, wow, I'm still proud of that book. So Now, I'm curious, Jim. I'm curious as to whether when you submitted this book, when you were finished with it, was there any nagging suspicion that oh, it might not yeah. have been your best work? Because I find that I rarely get away with anything because if I see something and think, you know what? I'm just going to see if this flies. I'm going to put this in. And then immediately, it's like the spots that tend to, 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 to you know, the, the rough spots that other people notice as being rough were ones I realized you know, that, I, that I said, I wonder if that's going to work. I don't think so, but let me see if I get it by somebody. And it never does. So, so often my instincts were right, but you try to bullet through. Did you find, were you thinking like, I'm not sure if this is the best thing, but let me see if they like it? Yeah, very much so, because I don't know if you guys are like this, but when I finish, whenever I finish a novel, I go, well, this is <laughs> This is yeah, garbage. This is direct. Only because you're going, oh, I could have done this and this and this. And yet there's an underlying sense of, hey, I've got something solid here, but it's got warts and stuff. With this one, yeah, yeah it felt like a lot of bolted-on pieces and a lot of scenes where you go, that was a good scene, but it didn't – yeah, there was a nagging suspicion that it didn't hold together. Yeah. And I have three beta readers that I always send it to, and two of them said, oh, this is great. We love it. And the third said, a, a gal who I really trust, she goes, Jim – I did not get this. <laughs> and so yeah. I guess it wasn't a total surprise when my, my editor just said, Jim, it's just not working. So, I, yeah, I, yeah. Guess I, I guess that's a long way of yeah. saying there was a part of me that knew. How about you, Stephen? Have you ever just reached the point where you know, you're know you wondering, but you try, you, you give it a go, and, and then you try to slide it by somebody, but it just doesn't get passed? Yeah, you know, I have had to learn to just trust my instinct because, yeah. like you said, it's almost always right. There have been some scenes where I'm like, oh, it's a great scene or a story thread or something, but there's that little niggling voice inside of me saying, no, it doesn't quite work here. It doesn't it, – and then in the end, yeah. I always have to change it. And uh, And so I think, you know, the more we really immerse ourselves in this idea of – Story, believability, character, tension, escalation, unmet desire, all of these aspects we keep talking about, emotion is emotionally resonant. I think that the more we play in this in this playground or this sandbox or whatever you want to call it, the more our instinct starts to get honed and we say, you know what, that's just not going to. It's just not going to happen, um, mm-hmm. and and so it takes a lot of. I remember one day just laying in bed, and I was like, "This book was due," and I was like, "It just won't work." And I said to my wife, "I got to throw out the first sixteen thousand words," mm-hmm. and she goes, "That's painful, isn't it?" And I'm like, "You have no idea, you know, because I'm not a fast writer." So for me, that was about a month of work. Where mm-hmm. I basically just had to say, "Man, I just it just it doesn't fit in this book." So. So having that courage is is vital, I think. You know, a lot of comedians, if they can come up with 30, 30 minutes of new material a year, they're thrilled. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, some yeah. will come up with an hour, and they'll be like, yeah. how did you do that? You know, other yeah. comedians, how did you come up with an hour of material yeah. in a year? And, you know, we sit here and think, how hard could that be? Well, it's shaping, <laughs> it's honing, it's getting yeah. the right yeah. beats yeah. and pauses and, yeah. and the right exact word to get that laugh. And, and I so, often find that the ones that I'm – this is on a smaller scale. Like, you know, it's not this whole book isn't working, but it's it's when I look at a book and there are, you know, five or six things that somebody goes, you know, well, somebody says, well, you know, maybe that didn't quite work. Those are often the ones – you know, you, we've all heard the phrase, you've got to kill your darlings. 
And it's often those, you know, I, William Goldman, I think, stole it from, from uh, it might have been um, Faulkner or somebody. I think it was Faulkner originally. But the idea that, that you can't, your, write, your own writing can't become so precious to you that you can't, you know, you can't change it. And so there's some things you absolutely love that don't fit. For me, it's often those moments where, you know, I wrote a beautiful sentence. I love that sentence. I love how it sounds. Trips off the tongue and doesn't fit in the paragraph at all. You know, and and, and uh, I remember, I remember um, at the end of uh, one of my books, I thought it was such a, it was this great moment. It was, a, it was a poignant moment, and I wrote it, and it wasn't even a character dialogue. You know, it was in the narrative. My narrative hadn't been this this um, style at all, but I came right. up with this great sentence, and then suddenly it's just sticking like out like you know like 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 a ne- in red neon you know blaring, and uh, my editor said. Well, that's a little purple prose, isn't it, right there? And I thought, oh, man, none of this, nothing in this book is intended to be anywhere near purple. And then I stuck that thing in there. And I loved it, but it had to go. And I often find, for me, it's my little darlings that I just, I just don't want to get rid of because those little things are precious to me. Every single one of them ends up going. Well, um, this is this is great. I uh, I think that the conversation was good, but also just the specifics that, that came up. Um, the courage to say no to something that you've already you know, shaped and honed, but that's going to make it a better story. Um, just following the instinct and pursuing that, and and so James, this is great. I mean, our time flew past. Uh, oh yeah, this is a lot of fun. Um, great stuff. And uh, so, where's the best place online for readers to connect with you, follow your career, maybe you know, pick up the next uh, book that you have coming out? Well, I guess it'd be great if they could check out my website and maybe jump on my um my my newsletter list. It's it's just jameshankinsbooks.com. Uh, sign up for the newsletter there. I only send out a couple a year, uh, but it's it's a great way to find out you know where to go, what's coming, you know what's what's up next. And if they want to follow me on Twitter, that's great. It's James underscore Hankins underscore. I think is my handle. Excellent. Um, and so uh, Jim Rubar, tell us a little bit about your um, writing or your site. Where where can we get in touch with you? Yeah, um, uh, my next book comes out uh, uh, August ninth. So coming up here. Oh wow. Um, yeah. Uh, real quickly, um, so excited about that! Got a starred review in Publishers Weekly, which is my, oh, my first starred review. So, yeah, so that felt good. So, so that's coming out. And the best place for people people to keep in touch with me is on my website, uh, James L. Rubart R U B A R T dot com. And like my cohort, James, um, the best way to find out what's going on is sign up for my newsletter. Well, great. And uh, for info about my novel writing intensive retreats, uh, click to novelwritingintensive.com. We have one in October coming up in Dallas and one in Tennessee uh, next spring. Um, Also, more uh, guests and dozens of more interviews and broadcasts are available at thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.